0: Welcome back to Foster Adopt Minnesota's Let's Talk, a podcast that brings you valuable resources for prospective and current adoptive and foster families, as well as professionals. My name is Chris, and I'm an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota.
1: And I'm Sunny, also an education coordinator at Foster Adopt Minnesota.
0: We are recording this podcast in January in Minnesota, so there's no better way to pass the time than to think about spring. We will have our second annual spring summit sprinkled throughout the month of April. Not only do we want to think about April showers, rain and not snow, but we want to give listeners the chance to hear more of a personal side from our presenters. We have a great lineup and I wouldn't trade any of our starters in our rotation.
1: So we are thrilled to have Barb Clark as today's guest. Barb will be sharing a little about her upcoming webinar for professionals and parents Failure to launch, how to support adults with FASD on Wednesday, April 19th from 2:15 to 3.45 Central Time. We will also be asking her a few questions so that people can get to know Barb a little better.
0: Barb works at the North American Council on Adoptable Children, also known as NACAC, and provides training on trauma-informed strategies, post-adopt support, and her personal passion, FASD. Barb boldly claims to have made a ton of mistakes and wants to help others avoid these mistakes. She also shares that she has learned more through parenting than any degree could ever teach. Welcome Barb. We are eager eager to learn more about this important topic and hear your experiences and insight about FASD. So let's get started.
2: All right, I'm ready.
0: Yeah, welcome. Have you always been working in an FASD world?
2: No, you know, I, um, my profession used to be, I was a youth worker. I went to college for at the U of M University of Minnesota for youth development. And I ran um, youth centers in the Bloomington schools. And I did some um, nonprofit work in the youth development world, you know, running programs and camps for youth, you know, mostly adolescents for um, youth leadership kind of stuff. And so it wasn't until well, oh boy, I'm so bad at the years, but my daughter is 23 and she was 6 when she was diagnosed with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, so you'll have to do that math for me. So it what, what yeah, so that's what kind of got me into this world unintentionally just as I started trying to learn more about fetal alcohol and understand it better and kept hitting roadblocks and kept not really finding professionals that understood it and was looking for support groups and couldn't find what I needed. And so it just got me really passionate as I went through a several year journey. Well, I mean, it's still, I'm still on the journey of trying to learn more about it.
1: Nice. So, right. Yeah.
2: Sorry, I was just gonna say I worked at Proof Alliance, formerly known as the Minnesota Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome for about three years. Um, That was a little over 10 years ago is when I started there and I was a family resource coordinator there.
1: Nice. all right. And so over the years, how has your focus changed since
2: you first started in the profession? Oh, that's a good question, Sadie. So here's what's funny. I was just thinking about this before we came on today. Um, you know, when when our daughter was diagnosed when she was in first grade with this, it still took me several years to really understand this. And actually, I went to um, a training that um, you know Minadopt put on, and it might have even have been before they had the Minadopt name. I remember what <laughs> year they became. You guys became Minadopt, and now you're um, Fam, right? Foster Adopt right. Minnesota. Foster is it adoptive or adoption? Adopt, um, foster, adopt, uh, foster, adopt, Minnesota. Okay, so I went to a training, and this is back when Wendy Lee was the training coordinator, and it was in Saint Cloud, and we lived in Minneapolis, but we drove to Saint Cloud for an all-day um, training. And Carrie Fletcher, who is one of my um, one of the peop- one of the parents and caregivers who I have great admiration and respect, and has been a mentor to me in my life um, was doing the fetal alcohol component at that training. So you guys were actually the ones that provided the best training for me on this back when we were starting our journey. So I think that's kind of a cool thing, which is one of the things that makes me passionate about training for y'all nowadays, but, um, uh, and so that was kind of when we st- started learning, but it was still, I think it was maybe an hour and a half or a two hour session at the most that she did. Cause there was a couple of other um, sessions that day that were not fetal alcohol, um, you know, focused. And um, but it still really took me several more years to really start to understand that we needed to do things differently, but when I did get involved with Proof Alliance, um, even before I worked there, I was a volunteer in their speakers bureau and um, on some committees or did some different work with them. And I remember in some of the trainings or things that I was um, that I was involved in with Proof Alliance. I can remember that there was um, parents and caregivers who had adult children, right? And I had, you know, a small elementary age child. So I just kind of ignored all that. I'm like, oh, that's just not where I'm at, right? I don't, I don't, I'm trying to survive today. <laughs> and I didn't have time to think about that. And it's funny, you know, some caregivers out there like Jody Culp, who is, you know, a Minnesota caregiver who she and her daughter, Liz, have written several books on fetal alcohol and are kind of... Um, mammoths within the FASD community and she, Jody has also been a mentor and somebody who I greatly respect and so I can remember her though at some of these meetings talking about yeah but what about adult supports what about uh, the adults what do we do with the adults and I just remember sitting there thinking okay somebody should figure that out but not me <laughs> right <laughs> because I'm trying to figure yeah. out how to deal at that point with an elementary age child. And then, you know, this is the kind of the typical journey for all of us who are parents of any type is, you know, you're trying to figure out how to parent the child that you have in the moment that you're in. And you, we want to look forward too and figure out what we're going to be doing in the future. But now, um, you know, our daughter is 23. And so we've been navigating the adult um, world and parenting adults now for um, five years or so. And, um, and it's a whole different ball game, and um, and so yeah. So now I'm kind of passionate about trying to figure out how we can better support our adults, and um, and in particular, just neurodiversity. You know, it's a whole different ball game when you've got young adults or adults um, that are your children who have neurodiversity and need a different level of supports than typically, um, you know, developing adults.
0: Wow. So did you ever think when you were at that Minadop training? years
2: ago that here's where you would be now. Not in a million years now I had no idea. you know again, like I said, in in you know, we were kind of in a survival you know kind of phase is what it really felt like because we had, um, you know, my daughter is amazing and an awesome young woman and always has been, but she's always had a lot of really challenging behaviors. And so, um, you know, that's one of my big goals now that I have is wanting to try to help other families, not just survive, right. We want to move beyond surviving to thriving. And eventually we did, eventually we got there and that's like one of the messages that I always want to give, whether I'm talking to or training professionals or caregivers and families is there's always hope and it can always get better. Um, even in some of the toughest, really, really tough things that you might end up coming up against with, um, you know, a behavior or a circumstance that you're dealing with with your child, no matter what their age is, um, things can always get better. And that doesn't mean that we that when we hit one of those crises that we don't need to stop and, you know, and sit in that muck for a little bit, um, because we, we want to also just not. You know, I want to make sure that I, that I acknowledge that it's hard to be in those moments, but, um, but there is hope on the other end. And so that's something I never would have thought that I would be sitting here doing these trainings. (laughs) It was not something, wasn't a life goal of mine. Youth work was something I absolutely loved. And I never thought I would find a profession that was a better fit for me or that I enjoyed more. And the reason is because I'm still a teenager in my brain. So I think that's why I always enjoyed being a youth worker is because I still feel like I'm in high school. And I would say most of my coworkers and bosses and family would agree that I kind of act like a teenager a lot. So, um, so it's kind of definitely not something I thought I would be doing, but now um, it's something I really thoroughly enjoy. And like I said, I didn't think I would find a profession that I enjoyed more or felt like was better match for me. And I actually have. I, um, I I really enjoy the work that I do, even though it's really hard, right? It's hard to talk about some of these challenging things and some of these traumas that our kids have experienced, but it's worth it.
1: Good, sure. I'm sure it's super rewarding Um, and your message of hope is what stands out the most. A lot of times people don't feel like they have it.
2: Exactly. Very nice. Mm -hmm. All right.
1: Um, So what has been the biggest shift with FASD research findings or findings since you started?
2: Yeah, so there's been a lot of shifts, um, you know, a lot of information out there. You know, One of the toughest things with FASD is uh, diagnostics. Diagnostics are very complicated and very challenging to get in particular for adoptive foster and kinship families. Um, there has not yet been a lot of shift and change within that. Um, um, hopefully the diagnostic, you know, within the state of Minnesota, one of the most, uh, one of the great things about Minnesota is that we, uh, are, we, I say we, I just moved to Florida in May, but I still do a lot of work in Minnesota and still consider myself a Minnesotan. And, um, and everybody can tell down here that I'm from Minnesota with my long O's and my nice Norwegian accent. But anyways, we are, you guys are known as the most FASD competent state in the country. And, um, I work in, you know, I, I work at NACAC, the North American Council on Adoptable Children. Um, I am our training specialist and, um, I do five hours a week of my full-time job. There is supporting Minnesota families. But I also work in a program um, that a friend of mine in Canada started. His name is Jeff Noble, and it's um, the FASD Caregiver Kickstart Program, and it's a coaching program. And so there's families from all over the U.S., Canada, Korea, South Korea, you know, Ireland, all over in the U.K., South Africa. We have families from all over, and um, and literally all of them. Know that Minnesota is the place to be for FASD. There's, um, you know, and it's because of the advocacy that Proof Alliance has done. They are just a powerhouse when it comes to advocacy and um, and prevention and getting the word out. And so Minnesota has the most diagnostic clinics of any state. Um, And I mean, what is Minnesota? Between five and six million. Florida, where I live now, is over twenty-two million, and I that we, there's technically one diagnostic clinic in the whole state of Florida, but they do have a satellite site now in, um, at one other location. So two clinics here, and I think Minnesota has like 10. Oh, the population is very different. So, um, yeah, so Minnesota's I, and, and I have to tell the families that I work with that all the time. And I've even had to tell myself that when I'm frustrated because my daughter, um, uh, who's 23, who has an FASD, lives in Minnesota still. She's in group care there. And um, and sometimes I get really frustrated with navigating the services and the supports. And um, and I have to sometimes even tell myself, oh my gosh, even though it's still a broken system and not super smooth and easy to figure out and navigate, it's much better than it is in, the, in many other states. So that, that's always a positive thing to kind of look at. Okay. So if they were well,
0: going to have us look- beat with the temperature, but not our supports. <laughs>
2: exactly, <laughs> right? The temperature, I know it's like zero there or so today and it's oh, 80 yeah. degrees here. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. <laughs> yep. If you were going to direct someone to look up um, how to get diagnosed, would they go to Proof Alliance?
2: Absolutely, I even tell families that aren't Minnesota families to go to Proof Alliance's website. Um, you know, their FASD United is the national um, or organization on fetal. They used to be called the National Organization on Fetal Alcohol Syndrome, and they changed their name in the last year or so. And um, they've got great info on their website as well. But um, within Minnesota, there is a diagnostic tab under Proof Alliance, and you can. Um, You can even go in there and you can click, you can put your zip code in and um, you can put down if you're looking for a diagnostic clinic for a certain age group or within a certain certain miles of your zip code and it will come up and let you know that and Proof Alliance themselves even has their own diagnostic clinic there at their, you know, at their offices in St. Paul. Um, but they, but they also, they, have, what Proof Alliance has done is they have a diagnostic consortium that um, of all the diagnostic clinics that meet, I think a couple of times a year. And it's really nice because what they do is they all have agreed on using the same um, diagnostic kind of strategies and, and criteria for diagnostics. So that, that really just makes it very clear within Minnesota, the diagnostics are top notch. Okay.
1: Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So tell us a little about your topic of how to support adults with FASD and why you thought both parents and professionals would benefit.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we know is really common with our kids who have an FASD. And often when you hear me say in my kids, I'm still talking to my, about my adult kids. <laughs> um, is that they they usually have what we call a developmentally scattered profile. And so um, for neurotypical people, generally, you know, if we're 50 years of age, we usually are mostly functioning at a 50-year-old. When we're 10 years of age, that's where we're functioning. Or, you know, 20, you're functioning at a 20-year-old if you're somewhat neurotypical. But for our kids with an FASD, um, and then, again, within our families here through, you um, through FAM, you know, they're going to be families that are, deal, that are through adoption, foster, or kinship care. So these kids have not only experienced in utero trauma of alcohol exposure and possibly other in utero traumas, but also have experienced um, other trauma after birth of even if they were, the separation was initially right when they were born, whether it was voluntary or involuntary, there's still a level of trauma that comes with that. So so our kids, um, not only because of this prenatal organic brain injury, but then other traumas that they've experienced are usually not functioning developmentally at what their chronological age is. And so, you know, our in today's society, neurotypical 18-year-olds who are graduating high school um, uh, that don't have a lot of trauma history are usually needing a higher level of support from their family um, than you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, certainly. Um, But our kids who have an FASD and other traumas that they've experienced are usually not functioning at an 18-year-old level. And so we usually talk about cutting their age in half and that that's probably closer to where they're functioning at. And so with the nine-year-old, if we take the the 18, the legal adult age in the state of Minnesota, if we take that and cut it in half, we're dealing with a nine-year-old. Are we going to send a nine-year-old off to college and live in the dorms by them, you know, without a caregiver? Probably not. Are we going to sign them up for classes at the community college while they live at home even? Probably not. It's going to be over their heads, right? So, or are we just going to get them a job at Target or Walmart and, you know, probably not a nine-year-old. And so that's, what's hard. And and especially because they have this developmentally scattered profile, the vast majority of these individuals have really strong expressive language skills. And that's why they often um, don't qualify or appear at least to qualify for the right level of supports that they're going to need in those young adult years. And so, um, So I'm just super passionate with the families that I work with. Um, I I try to start talking to them about that when their kids are even at a younger age. And as I said earlier, I can remember sitting there listening to the parents that were parenting adults thinking, okay, yeah, but I don't want to think about that right now. But as we kind of got, you know, our feet wet a little bit and we're, you know, kind of starting to understand that our journey with our daughter was going to be a little bit different than we had maybe thought. Um, I did start to realize I do need to start planning and thinking ahead, right, for when she did become an adult. Um, Not all kids with an FASD need to have legal guardianship when they become adults, but some of them do, right? Some of them are not going to be capable of making healthy decisions and need some level of supported decision making for them. And so, you know, we did start digging into that. What I usually tell families is don't wait until a year before they're 18. Don't wait until 17 to start figuring this out. And I like started going to seminars on guardianship, for example, in Hennepin County, where we lived, I think when she was probably 13 or 14. And I ended up going to the same, um, the same training three different times before she turned 18, just because I was trying to get it to stick in my head and to, you know, we were, I I would pick different things out of it at different points. And so, um, you know, it's just really important to start to think about that. And, and if you're already parenting an adult with an FASD, you know, there's all these different things we have to think about. You can't you even if you have legal guardianship of your adult who has an FASD or if they maybe they have a public guardian, whatever it is, uh, that doesn't mean that we have to control them. Right. Um, there are certain decisions and things like that that we have to be involved in. And I have to coach parents through that all the time if they want to go get a tattoo and spend their entire paycheck on something like that <laughs> or if they want a nose piercing or a tongue piercing or whatever it is if if it's a something that you're struggling with because it's a value clash it's something you're clashing with from a values perspective um, that's where we have to sometimes step step back as we're parenting adults on the, on the fetal alcohol spectrum and see, is this, is it a safety issue? You know, there's kind of this harm reduction lens that we have to use. And so um, that's why it's just so important that we start giving the parents the tools and the strategies of how to deal with this and how to let go of some of those things, even though we know that they probably, for example, don't have enough money. They're, you know, they're not making enough money to be blowing that much of it on a tattoo or a tongue piercing or you know, whatever the thing is, um, you know, one of the things that we struggle with a lot is um, substance use and, um, and things like that. And so just having to kind of talk parents through that kind of stuff and what is it that you're able to control and what is out of your control and letting go of the things that are out of your control are really important. So there's just, there's so many, there's so many things that are, that we parents struggle with because we know our kids are not developmentally ready to handle the world on their own without a lot of support. but our kids don't quite get that. And so um, one thing that I start, I what I've been trying to talk with a lot of my families to start talking to their kids about even when they're younger before they've hit the adult age, is um, uh, you know, interdependence is something that when we have when I do the training um, coming up here in a few months that that I'll be talking a lot about, it's not that we want our kids to be independent it's interdependence, it's relying on others and, you know, and, and being able to work with others for what your needs are. And so um, I talk a lot about how, you know, with our daughter when she's like, stop trying to control me, you know. And and part of it is is they maybe see same age peers who are able to make some of these decisions or do some of these things on their own. Or, you know, they don't want to be in special ed supports or transition school or disability services if they're taking community college coursework or whatever it is, because they want to feel typical, right? Everybody wants to be the quote unquote normal, right? Which I don't think that exists anymore if it ever did. <laughs> but um but it's it's what what I start saying to my kids now is, hey, you know, you you think that professional athletes are, you know, amazing. Right. And they look up to professional athletes or maybe it's a CEO of a company. You know what all of those people have people they depend on. The professional athletes have coaches who tell them what they should do and where they should bounce the ball and where they shouldn't bounce the ball or throw the ball. They've got nutritionists who are telling them what they can eat and what they shouldn't eat. They've got they've got their agent who's their PR person who writes the press releases. They've got somebody their agent who's scheduling the appointments, you know. So um, so what what I what I start you know it looks we're in our society here in the U S we push independence so much, and um, and within the school programming they if if they're doing some of that um, basic life skill work and things like that with them in the secondary schools. Um, They're still not focusing enough on the fact that it's not that we're trying to give you independent living skills. We want you to have interdependent living skills is what we need to change those titles to because it's okay to have a team and to rely on a team, right? I think everybody needs a wife. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's not always a wife it could be a husband but we all need somebody in our life to help us with those kind of things and um and so you know letting them know that that's uh, that's okay so there's there's so much fun stuff that we're going to be talking about when we do this training and trying to dig into the weeds of how we can better support our kids and help them to feel um you know how help them to feel like they're successful and to give them the tools that they need to be successful, but to help them to understand that it is okay to have a team of people um, that are helping you because we all need it. We, it's, right? It takes a village and there's no doubt about that. That's great. And you use such relatable topics such as
0: professional athletes and mm-hmm. you know your whole team of people around you.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, I'm 53,
2: and I wish I had a team of people helping me. I <laughs> I You're right. I need somebody that makes all these appointments and things for me. I would <laughs> love that. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, why are you fighting this? Stop <laughs> it. It sounds, you no, know, it's amazing. But yeah, but I get why they are, right? Because they just want to be typical, and they want to have They want to have some control in their life. And, you know, until they're 18, they have very little control, even if even if they haven't been following the rules or the things that we have within our family units. um, You know, it makes sense that they want to have some independence and that kind of stuff and you know one of the things that's a common struggle i hear from families and i can even remember this with um with my kids too is that they think that like i don't know what they think happens on their 18th birthday like the heavens open up and there's like this big thing and like everything changes <laughs> and it's like no you're going to you're going to be just the same the day after your 18th birthday right you, you know there's not a lot of things that change other than the fact that if you do get arrested Or if you get into trouble, it's uh, at a higher level sometimes. And so, you know, that. but overall, there's not a big change that happens. But because our kids who have a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder are such concrete thinkers, they are so incredibly concrete. And they've been told this, especially within the school system, they're hearing about that 18, 18, you know, they hear about that. And how that that's when you're 18, they can't do this anymore when you're 18. Here's what changes. And so, um, so a lot of times, you know, and that's the other thing, even just like with guardianship, there's different ways that we need to have that conversation with our kids, um, because they think that it's just the parents wanting to control them more, and for an extended period of time. And, um, and, and what I, you know, what my goal always is, it's not for the parents or whoever the guardian would be to control them more. It's to be able to give them the right level of support that they need. And um, looking at it from that perspective, if we've, if we phrase it like that and talk to our kids about it from that perspective, they're usually more open to the idea of guardianship.
1: Mm.
2: But okay. not all of our kids need legal guardianship either. Some of them, you know some of them are going to be okay in those early years. but the other step we'll be talking about when I do this webinar is, um, also we'll be talking about um, how there, you know one of the other pitfalls that our education system has been doing in the last several decades is shoving college down every kid's throat. And not everybody should go to college. Not everybody needs to go to college, and it's not for everybody. And um, and and definitely, there are some individuals with an FASD who would be capable of doing college and handling college coursework. But the vast majority of them at 18 and 19 are not going to be developmentally ready for it yet. And so that's the thing that I, when I work with families, I do a lot of coaching about that, about trying to see if and, and even you know while their kids are in high school trying to get the team of staff the educators on the same page so that they don't keep talking about college right out of high school if that's not the right path for this particular child and so um, because what happens nowadays is you know what are you doing after high school is the big question that we're asking everybody their senior year right and these kids feel like failures if they're not going to college or taking post-secondary coast coursework, and so um, there you know there's a lot of different options out there. There's Job Corps, um, you know, in Minnesota it's the Hubert H Humphrey Job Corps, which is right across from the state fairgrounds, can be a good option for some of our kids. AmeriCorps can be a phenomenal option for a lot of our kids. Um, You know, and and so, you know, there but there are other things, too, that they can um, that we can have them be doing so that they have an answer that they can give to those people and so that it doesn't make them feel inadequate. Um, But what most of our kids need is several more years of brain development, because I usually think that a lot of our kids probably are not ready for coursework, even if they have high IQs until they're probably closer to 25 to 30 um and so trying to you know cuz again if we take their age and cut it in half when you're 30 you're 15 right um if we look at that the kind of the developmentally scattered profile and what happens is if they go off to college right away and i have a couple of families um who have experienced that this fall where their kids started off okay the first maybe 4 or 5 weeks and then um you know, even though the, and they even had a lot of supports and tutors and, you know, things set up, but it just was way too overwhelming. And so now what we have is we have another failure on this kid's resume and it, and what it does is it can sour them to the idea of ever going back. And so that's why I really often been trying to get families to like find another, other experiences that we can do right out of high school. And some of our kids can qualify for the public school, transition school programming from 18 to 21, you know, that can be a good option for some of them too. But um, we've got to just think out of the box. I mean, there's, if there's one thing I've learned parenting and kids with an FASD and working with them is we've got to think way outside of the box. Okay, that's
1: great advice. Um, Is there one more tidbit of advice that you would like to leave our listeners with?
2: Yeah, you know, my biggest piece of advice, I'm gonna probably give a couple of them, I know you said one, but I'm (laughs) gonna give a couple. One, first of all, is connecting with other caregivers who are on the same journey, right? So, um, you know, uh, getting connected is really important. At NACAC, you know, we have close to 15 staff throughout the state of Minnesota and we have support groups that are meeting um, almost daily um, on Zoom, some of them are in person again. Um, More of them would be going in person, but so connecting with other parents and other caregivers, but the, um, is really important because that's where, that, that was where we finally started to learn how to properly parent our daughter. It wasn't from a psychologist. It wasn't from a doctor. It wasn't from a social worker. It was from other caregivers on the same journey because those professionals, the vast majority of them, the advice they were giving us was token economy systems like sticker charts and, um, you know, getting more strict and doing things like that. That all that all that those, and again, that's not every professional. I'm not saying that by any means. But the caregivers who are more experienced is definitely where I started to learn that we needed to do things differently. And um, and so the other big piece of advice, though, um, with with dealing with kids with an FASD, whether you're a professional or a parent, is trying to move away from the traditional strategies. Of consequence and punitive based behavior modification things. And so, and trying to also move away from the reward, um, the reward system, you know, of sticker charts and token economy overall, if it works, that's great. But if it's not working, and if we're having a lot of kind of like challenging behaviors and explosiveness or self-esteem issues and things like that, the kind of parenting um, and support that these kids need, whether you're a teacher or a social worker or a parent, is a more connected relational type of strategies is what these kids really need as opposed to grounding them or taking something away from them or having them earn you know, five stickers a day or whatever it is. Um, If we if we can move to and I always call it, I jokingly refer to it as wussy parenting, um, because you feel like a total wuss, like not giving a consequence. It's because that's just how our world works. Right. And so, um, you know, you feel like you're letting these kids run the ship. It feels really weird, especially in the beginning. But I'm telling you, it pays off. And I have seen this with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families that things get better when we start using different um, different kind of approaches to these kids.
0: Well, I thank you so much, Barb. And we really look forward to your webinar in April. I don't know if you have any last words or if Sonny, you have any questions?
1: No, that's um, very helpful. I'm very much looking forward to your April
2: webinar. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it too. April will be, it's too bad I won't be there in person, right? It'll be nice and warm, warmer in April. Oh, Don't be do zero hope. like it is today. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're hoping for. <laughs> no, so I'm looking forward a- to it. I hope people can join. And and I, I also, I, I think it's great too if we can get professionals there too because professionals need to know what to tell the parents and, how, and the kids. So yeah, this will be, it'll be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to digging in and developing this one.
0: Yeah, awesome. And I just want to thank you for your time, spending some time with us this afternoon. And I know you're such a big hit with, people who take your training. So we're excited to have you in April. My pleasure. Thanks for all your good work, you guys. If you are interested in hearing Barb Clark present, please go to our website and register for her webinar, Failure to Launch How to Support Adults with FASD at famadoptminnesota.org. That's famadoptmn.org. Our spring summit is free to all. The date and time again is April 19th from 2.15 to 3.45 central. If you can't make it for her live webinar, you can always search her name in our webinar library and a list of trainings will appear. She gets rave reviews, so I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for joining us today for Let's Talk. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to our podcast and tune in again soon.